marched me right back to the pro shop and made me apologize to the guy behind the counter, which is a rather intimidating thing for a seven-year-old to do. And so I apologized to him, and I put those golf tees back, and I felt like the schmuck of Central California for stealing all of those golf tees. All of us are thieves, and thieves and theft manifests itself in various different ways. The Internal Revenue Service estimates that somewhere around $300 billion every year goes unpaid in income tax. Everything that you buy at any store has a tacked-on fee of about 15 to 20% to cover the cost of shoplifting. Everything that you pay $50 for really ought to cost 40 but you pay 50 for it because of shoplifting. Some of you who are a little more seasoned will probably remember a time where you could leave your car door unlocked and the front door to your house unlocked, but I think that you would be crazy to do that today because we know that thieves abound in our society. It doesn't matter where you live, it's just crazy to do that. The Eighth Commandment prohibits theft. It prohibits stealing. And I think there are a few presuppositions that the Eighth Commandment brings to us. Several things that it just presupposes and assumes. I think the one thing that the Eighth Commandment assumes is that stuff is good. Our things are good. The things that you own, the things that you possess, those are by and large good things. When you read what Paul has to say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you discover this. He says... As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What Timothy seems, or what Paul seems to be saying there in 1 Timothy is that ultimately we are to set our hopes on God and God alone. That's where our rest and that's where our solace and that's where our hope belongs. But this God is a God who gives us good things to enjoy. And we ought to enjoy the things that God has given us. Our stuff is not inherently bad. There are a lot of things that I have that I enjoy. I enjoy being able to take some time on a Saturday afternoon in the fall and turn on my cable TV and watch the Arizona Wildcats play football. However poorly they may play that game, I enjoy watching them do so. I enjoy reading a good book. I enjoy the ability to take my wife out on a date from time to time and enjoy a fun evening out together. I don't think that any of that is bad. I think that's good. The the Eighth Commandment presupposes that our stuff is good. If, If it wasn't good, there would be no need for this. If it was just an irrelevant thing, there would be no need for a commandment such as this. I think that it not only presupposes that our things are good, but it also assumes a right to private property. It assumes private property rights. I drive a 1996 Honda Accord with 233,000 miles on it. And I know that so many of you lust after my bucket of bolts But the fact of the matter is that that car is mine and it is not yours and you cannot have it. 
I have a right to that car. It is mine. It is my private property. And you have your own private property as well, don't you? And it assumes a right to that. Children know this. We are born understanding this. If your child's first word was not no, it was probably mine. (laughs) And when a child is playing, they have a toy, and if another child comes along and rips that toy out of their hands, they're very likely to pitch a conniption fit, aren't they? And, And understandably so. You would do the same. If someone just took something that you owned that you worked for, that that was yours, and just snatched it right out of your hands. And I think it's wrong to go up to that child and immediately say, well, you have to share that toy. Yes, they have to share that toy, but it's their toy. Let them play with it for a little bit and then say it's time to share the toy. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it belongs to them. I think that it assumes private property rights. If this commandment would not need to exist if there was an underlying assumption that all property was community property, that, that all property just belonged to the, the, the nation, people as a whole, as it's represented by the state, as some sort of socialist type of mentality here. There, there would be no need for a commandment like this if, the, if private property rights were not assumed. And there's a third thing that I think it assumes, along with our stuff being good and along to a right to private property, It assumes that we accumulate things, we acquire property through a strong work ethic. It it assumes a work ethic. We're able to thrive by working hard. One of the things that we discovered as we were looking at the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery, is that the very first thing that Adam and Eve were commanded to do were to have relations with one another, produce a child. But the second thing that they were also commanded to do was to subdue the earth. So before the fall ever happens, before any sin enters into the world, they're called to work. They have a job. They're to till the soil. They are to to tend to the garden. And that work is a very, very good thing. They had to work hard at it. it. It wasn't... Painful. It wasn't frustrating like your work and my work is, but nevertheless, they were called to do that. And when you look forward into the New Testament, you see Paul again speaking about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. I want you to listen to this, to what Paul says. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. My friends, the opposite of theft is work. If you're working, there's no need to steal. Labor replaces theft, and it enables us to support ourselves, to support our families, and to also be producers, to be people who, are, uh, who can give back to those who have certain needs. And so a strong work ethic is assumed in the Eighth Commandment. And so with that in view, I think there's a, there's a big idea that we need to see and discover and latch on to. And here's what it is. The, the big idea of the Eighth Commandment is that we are to neither take nor keep things that do not belong to us. Is that simple enough? We're not to take things or to keep things that do not belong to us. We're to respect other people's possessions 
and we're to avoid defrauding them. It, it, it sounds rather simple, rather intuitive to so many of us. You don't have to be a Christian to know that it's wrong to steal. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is a problem. It wouldn't even be in the list of top ten things as to how we're designed to live if this were not an issue in our life. Not just the life of people out there, but the life of people in here. Because at the end of the day, we all have this problem. And we all need to be reminded of it. And I think that we discover a little bit more of the shape that this takes when we look into the passage that I read to you in Matthew 19. This is a well-known story of the uh, rich young ruler. And what you have in Matthew 19 is a, is a wealthy young man, a spiritually interested young man. I mean, he's coming to Jesus and he's asking things about eternal life. Those are good questions. Those are ultimate questions. We should be grappling with those issues. And, and he asks what he can do to get eternal life. And there's a presupposition there, isn't there? The, the, the fact that he's asking what he can do to get eternal life presupposes in his own soul that there's something that he must do or something that he must avoid in order to get that life. There, there's some way in which he can merit that life. And so Jesus plays the game with him. He says, if you want to get eternal life, then you need to obey the commandments. And he lays out the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10 of the Ten Commandments by and large. He says you shouldn't murder or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness. You need to honor your parents. And at the end of the day, you just need to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what you're called to do. And the man replies to Jesus and he says, all of these I have kept. Now, flashing red lights and sirens ought to be going off in your head when you hear that. Because when he said, all of these I have kept, he stood before Jesus Christ himself and told the biggest whopper of a lie that has probably ever been told on the planet. If you think that you have kept all these commandments, you are a colossal fool because at the end of the day we have broken all of them. All of them. In some manifestation or another. I think that's what we've discovered as we've gone through this series. And so, with that said, Jesus goes for the jugular, doesn't he? Jesus goes for the jugular. He says, if you would be perfect... Go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When, when Jesus says that to this man, he exposes his idol. He exposes the very object of his affection, the object of his identity. The object of his self-definition was his stuff, his possessions, his assets, his money, his resources. And that's why he says here that the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that the way in which we get to heaven is by any merit of ours, by giving money or giving things to the poor. Jesus clearly, clearly has a 
a serious heart for those who are materially poor. There's no question about that, and that's another sermon for another day. But he is not saying that you get there by following him and by giving things to the poor or by doing any good work. What he is saying, okay, if you think that you are perfect then, you have to obey the commandments perfectly. And hypothetically, you can merit your own salvation and you can merit eternal life by obeying the law perfectly. You wouldn't need Christ's righteousness because you would have a righteousness of your own to be able to stand on before him. But in saying this, Jesus is exposing the fact that this Eighth Commandment issue, that this, this issue of building your identity upon your stuff and being greedy is something that's really ultimately an issue of your heart. And it exposes a darkness there. It exposes a, a rebellion there. And he hits this guy right where it counts by exposing this idol. The, the rich man in this story, we don't know how he acquired his wealth. We don't know if he acquired it by working hard for it or if he inherited it or if by some shady business deal he stole it from people. Well, we don't know if it's a combination of all three. We don't know if he was a thief, but we do know that he had the heart of a thief. We do know that that's what was going on in his heart because the heart of a thief is someone who says, I must have this. I must have that. I must have this money, these assets, all of these things in order to be secure, in order to have an identity, in order to make life worth living, in order to get up in the morning. I have to have these things and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get these things, even if it means defrauding my neighbor, stealing from him or her, or somehow undercutting and robbing them. That's the heart that this rich young ruler has, and they will pursue those things to the point of theft. And you know, I think that there are a whole heap of practical ways in which we do this in our ordinary life. This is, this is an issue for us. And let me just outline a few of them for you. One, one way I think that we can find ourselves imbibing this mentality of theft and succumbing to, to stealing is through a lack of integrity in our business practices. A lack of integrity in the way in which we conduct ourselves in that way by underpaying those that we employ or by somehow getting involved in shady or questionable business deals or by fudging on our taxes. Any of those ways. There are a whole host of ways in which we get involved in this kind of thing. We have seen over the last several years scores of Fortune 500 companies and banks and so forth come up with all sorts of ways to invent greed. I mean, that, that's just become characteristic of the business culture in our country and we've seen all sorts of ethics violations take place. We saw Bernie Madoff appropriately named, make off with tens of billions of dollars of investor funds. The biggest Ponzi scheme in history. We may look at that and go, that's them. We're small potatoes in comparison. 
But the fact of the matter is, those people that we see on TV, those people who are big wigs in our culture, give expression of what may very well be going on in our own hearts in, in much more obscure ways in our own life. We can imbibe the mentality that we must do anything, anything to get ahead. Even if that means lying, cheating, or stealing. It happens with people in the church. People in the church are all the time, unfortunately, caught up in business practices that are unbecoming of someone who expresses a a, a faith in Christ, a dependence upon Him. And very often, in the way in which we conduct our business, it looks no different from the world. That ought not be the case for someone who rests in Jesus Christ. Here's a second thing, and I'm mentioning this just simply because of our context, which happens to be the issue of gambling. I'm mentioning this because of our context. We happen to be a mile or two from no less than seven casinos. I think it would be irresponsible to not mention this. But gambling is at best an unwise thing to do and and a poor use of stewardship. Because gambling is something that is based on a win-lose principle. For, for you to go and win $1,000, that means that 50 people have to lose $1,000. Does that make sense? If, if you lose when you gamble, you hurt yourself. And if you win, you hurt somebody else. The, the whole ethos of that is based on things like chance and risk and luck, and fate. And these are things that the Bible knows nothing of. That's not, those are not biblical paradigms. Those are not biblical worldviews. And it, and it causes us to live without an intentional understanding of God's providence and His sovereignty in our life. It, it breeds within us a culture and an ideology that makes us seek first riches and money rather than seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. At best, it's just an unwise thing to do and it's poor stewardship. Here's a a third practical example of how we may succumb to this. We can find ourselves violating the Eighth Commandment when our quest for things becomes the ultimate issue of our life. When our need to acquire stuff becomes ultimate to us. We live in a world that tells us that if we know three people on the face of the earth with a nicer car or a bigger house than us, then we are just the schmucks of South Mississippi. That we may as well be people who are living in a van down by the river. I mean, that's what we're told. Banks and business and government, they've they've all used a lack of integrity and judgment. They've they've all been dishonest. But the fact of the matter is is that we do the same thing when we just go on a full-orbed spending binge. I mean, have you thought about the heart of why someone would live in such a greedy and, and in such an over-the-top sort of way with regard to how they use their money. I think part of it has to do with the fact that so many of us have imbibed a, an, an entitlement mentality. 
We're entitled to certain things. And we're, we're told all the time, every day of your life, a message gets preached to you that you deserve something. I deserve this, I deserve that. Get the lower back pain relief you deserve. Get the cheap auto insurance you deserve. I mean, for goodness sakes, what in the world did I do to deserve a, a slap chop and a box of sham wows for nineteen ninety nine plus shipping and handling? <laughs> we don't deserve that. There's, listen, there's one thing that you and I deserve. One thing that you and I deserve, and I promise you that you don't want it. We don't deserve this stuff, but we've told ourselves that we do. And we must have it in order to be a legitimate human being in this world. And it makes us greedy. We endanger our future when we spend money like that. And we rob from our children's future. And it vibes in us a mentality that says, what I have is who I am. What I have is who I am. Making our, our quest for Money and things, the, the chief pursuit of our life, also prevents us from being cheerful and liberal givers. It keeps us from being able to do that. Paul Harvey told a great story one time about this woman who had one of those big box freezers that they used to have back in the day. and She was cleaning it out and at the bottom of the freezer she found a turkey that had been in that freezer for 23 years. Now, I think that's 1988. So imagine a turkey that's been in there since the first Bush administration. That's how old this turkey was. So she finds the turkey that's been in there for 23 years, and she calls the Butterball Turkey Hotline. Apparently there is one, and she calls the... Butterball turkey hotline and and says, I found this turkey. It's been in there for 23 years. Is it still edible? And the guy says, well, if it's been frozen at zero degrees for 23 years, you can still eat it. It'll taste like cardboard, but you can still eat it. And she goes, great, that's what I was hoping to hear. I'll give it to the church. (laughs) Friends, I wonder if that's the the best that so many of us do sometimes. We're we're charitable givers when it's something like a 23-year-old turkey. It's something that's irrelevant. It's the leftovers. We give the leftovers to God. Malachi chapter 3 says that unfaithful giving is the equivalent of robbing from God. It's it's theft from God. Yes, the Eighth Commandment presumes private property. It presumes that our stuff is good. It presumes a right to our wealth. But, at the end of the day, everything that we have belongs to God. Everything. We can get caught up on the tithe and say... 10% belongs to God and I'm going to give that to the church or I'm going to give that to missionaries or whatever and the other 90% belongs to me to use how I please. Wrong answer. All of it belongs to God. 
Every last thing that you own, every resource that you have, every talent that you possess, all of it belongs to God. All of it does. Everything that we have that He has freely given to us is to be used for His glory and not for our own. That doesn't mean that you give 100% of your income to the church. That doesn't mean that. That means that you live your life with a Godward focus. Seeking His glory, seeking His will in how you use the funds and the talents and the time and the treasure that God has so graciously bestowed upon you. Listen again to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This will transform the way that you view your stuff. He says this, Though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When you get that, and that's the stuff flowing through the veins of your life, it enables you to give with great liberality and great cheerfulness. The early Christians... Prior to coming to know Christ, they were just as greedy as everybody else. They were thieves. They they were self-absorbed, narcissistic people, just like everyone else. But then the gospel comes. And they start to understand this. They start to understand that they are in chronic spiritual poverty that they will never be able to get out of. And that Jesus has come and he has bestowed the riches of his grace upon them. Something that they could never squander. And they start to get that and you start to see what happens in their community life together. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, you start to see that these Christians begin to sell their stuff. They begin to sell it off. And they begin to give the proceeds to those who have need. They begin to sacrifice their things so that they will stop robbing from the community, stop robbing from the the church, and start giving over to them, so that no one in their congregation, with whom they worship, with whom they call a brother and sister in Christ, is someone who's in need. That's how sacrificial they become. You know, theft, it's, it's it's a problem in the church and in the world. It's a problem for the richest of the rich, and the poorest of the poor alike, and everyone in between. But in Matthew 19, Jesus focuses in on the rich, and he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I think the reason why he says that is because a rich person's faith is so easily pent up in his and and the money that you and I have And, and friends comparatively to the rest of the world each one of us in this room are probably in the top 2% of of people with wealth in this world no matter what place you are financially we have been so abundantly abundantly blessed with so many incredible material things and it is a blessing, and I want you to see it as a blessing. But what God wants you to do is not build your life upon that. 
Not make that the root of your security. It can be gone tomorrow. Completely. Use it for His glory. Use it for the good of His people. Use it for the good of His mission. That's what He wants you to do. Don't rob. If if you are an able-bodied member of this church and you, you don't participate in any way, you don't serve one another, you're not... You're not connected in any way. Can I suggest to you that you might be robbing this church of gifts that you have that God has graciously given to you? You know, if you're a member of this church and, and you don't give anything of, of more value than, a, than an old frozen turkey, can I just suggest to you that the gospel is probably not penetrating into your life to the degree that it probably should. We sing about the vast, unmeasured, boundless, free love of Jesus. It knows no borders. It knows no boundaries. And it's all yours in the gospel. I think when you know that, when it saturates your life, it allows you to be more honest and less greedy, and less reliant upon stuff, and much, much more open-handed. Here's the last thing I want to say. I find it utterly fascinating that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two thieves. There was one on his right and one on his left, and the first thief, who believed in his own goodness, made a demand upon Jesus for what he thought he deserved. Get me out of this mess. And I'm sure that he heard from Jesus, away from me, I never knew you. The second thief was a man who knew his guilt, who understood that he was a sinner and he made a request to Jesus for something he knew that he didn't deserve. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's think about that now as we come to him in prayer. Father, your law that you give to us exposes what you reveal to us in your word, which is that our hearts are deceitful above all things. We have a wickedness within our souls that we want to deny exists, that we want to cover up. But the fact of the matter is is that there's not one person here this morning, including myself, who is not a thief. We have robbed your people. We have robbed you. And we are in need of your forgiveness. And we thank you that time after time after time when we plumb the depths of your word, you promise that you cast our sin into the depth of the sea. You send it off as far as the east is from the west and you remember it no more. And you do that 
Not because we are so good, but despite the fact that we are so bad. You've given us grace upon grace. So Lord, let us not be people who squander that and nullify it. Let us be people who love it and cherish it and live appropriately in response to it by giving over our time, our talents, and our treasures for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.